Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Born to Talk Radio Show. I'm your host, Marsha Waiteka. Conversations plus connections equals community. Those are my three C's. The heart of my show is what's your story? It's my belief we all have stories. Some are similar, others are uniquely different. Storytelling brings the passions of my guests to life through our conversations. So be prepared to be entertained, informed, and inspired. Welcome to today's show. Hi, everybody, and welcome, and it's the luck of the Irish week, right? Well, I want to thank you for joining me again today on another episode of the Born to Talk radio show podcast. My guest today is Gary L. Polk, Sr. Welcome to the show, Gary. Thank you, Marcia. It's going to be really fun. I want to just tell our listeners just a tiny bit about you, but then I'm going to actually have you tell us about yourself. So for those of you listening, Gary is the CEO and president of the Polk Institute Foundation. He is also a business consultant. He's an author. He's a university professor. I know. Can you imagine all those hats? And as you will hear, Gary is passionate about social entrepreneurs and why they succeed or fail. His initial book, Why Entrepreneurs Fail to Win, which is in parentheses, is widely used as a textbook in college entrepreneurship programs. And his second book, Why Black and Brown Entrepreneurs Fail, in parentheses, to win, was just recently published this last December, and we're going to be talking a lot about entrepreneurs, but I thought before we got to that part of the show, it's always fun for me to have my guests share a little bit about your background, about yourself. We actually discovered that we actually have a mutual friend, but I thought, just tell us a little bit about yourself, Gary. Well, thanks for asking. Uh, I'm an L.A. product. My parents both hailed from Texas, a small town called Waxahachie. Either you've heard of it or you have not. It's right outside of <laughs> Dallas. But I spent all mm-hmm. my life here in L.A., primarily the South Bay. I uh, went to Gardena High School, two years at Azusa Pacific, got my four-year degree at Loyola Marymount, and a master's degree at Cal State Dominguez Hills. Uh, so where I'm from is L.A., and I've had career opportunities to go to places like Cleveland, uh, Memphis, Seattle, Eastern Washington, and no, I'm an L.A. guy. I love L.A. I love our lifestyle. I love our weather, and I love the diversity that we enjoy here. So that's a little bit about my personal side. Uh, I told you about the education. I came out of Loyola Marymount and started off in banking at B of A. Friends called me Mr. B of A. I love banking. Didn't realize how much I learned about business until after I left banking. So 10 years, I leave banking uh, after a great run and go into insurance and learned about selling. But the two best things I learned in banking, one was character. They taught us the five C's of credit as a loan officer, and the number one C was character. So that meant something to me. They also taught us about relationships and establishing long-term relationships. B of A had something called the 80-20 rule. 80% of our profits came from 20% of our customers. In other words, take care of those valued customers and establish long-term relationships. So I've used character relationships through all my careers. I didn't find education until 91, never looked for it. Someone tapped me on the shoulder and asked me to teach a class, 
at Cal State Northridge back in 91. And then all of a sudden, three years later, I realized teaching was my passion. Five years after that, I left my uh, career path at Farmers Insurance to teach and coach girls basketball and pursue my passion. <laughs> left a lot of money on the table, but the best decision I ever made in my life. You know, it's so interesting. I, I, I didn't mention this to you when we've, when we've spoken before off the air. My very first job was at Bank of America in Westchester, right out of high school. Wow. And it's really funny because I, I actually I wasn't a teller. I was one of those people in the back that actually pushed a carriage and did um, data um, accounting information. Now we're talking 1967, a day or two ago. Um, and mm. it's funny because, you know, you went to Gardena, I went to Westchester, our schools played against each other in football. I mentioned yes. my friend Terry Kenny and you were um, Loyola Marymount um, um, fraternity brothers, and I guess you also worked at, yes. at um, Farmers together. It's, so it's really interesting, the crossovers in life. And I, it's one of the things I so enjoy when I do my shows is that sometimes those things ap- actually happen, and, and I love that. So you, you've given us a, a great background in, in where you where you started, but now but you but you you're you're an instructor, and I love what you said about character and establishing relationships, because you've you've authored two books, and we're going to be spending some time talking about that. So let's start talking. First of all, I'm just kind of curious about this. Had you always thought about being a writer, Gary? No, but I've loved to read. I've always loved to read as a child. I grew up as the only child, so I read a lot. I really loved American history. So I remember uh, in the 11th grade, I took U.S. history, and I was in one of these AP-type classes, and I was an athlete, and I got the highest grades in the class. And uh, I remember uh, my teacher, Mr. Schroeder, said, Polk, are you cheating? I said, what do you mean? He said, why are you getting the top grades? You're a jock. I said, because I love U.S. history. I've been reading that stuff since the fourth grade, and really you haven't challenged me. The great thing about history, dates don't change, and I have a pretty good uh, mind for dates. And so I just love history from that standpoint and uh, love to read. Uh, 95, a friend of mine, we started a co-ed book club, and uh, since 1995, what's that, 26 years now? We Mm -hmm. have uh, read one book a month, and my favorite genre is historical fiction, but I have read all kinds of books. One good thing about being in a co-ed, you'll read books that, you you know, the masculine guy is not going to read, like Bridges Over Madison County and The Notebook and things like that. Probably see a lot of different kind of writing, and mm-hmm. maybe that just kind of hint gave me a hint on being a writer. But really never dreamed of that or never made yeah. that as a focus. Yeah. It's, it's very – I have so many people that are authors on my show, um, from adult author, uh, writing adult um, information, also children's books. And it's also real interesting how people's pathways get them to that, to that point. And, and it was interesting to hear yours. So your first book, which was titled Why Entrepreneurs Fail, and I think it's important, and I know that I, I have it up on my blog and on my website, To Win, which is in parentheses, is the name of your first book. It's an insider's perspective that you wrote in 2019. And my question to you about this particular book, Gary, is 
What was your inspiration for writing that book, Why Entrepreneurs Fail to Win? I had been teaching entrepreneurship for about 27 years at that point. Uh, had been involved with a couple of scholarly uh, research papers, but never wrote a book. And so I decided uh, a textbook publisher actually reached out and said, hey, do you have an idea for a book? If you do, we can work with you. We work with uh, professors and we publish textbooks. And I gave him an outline. He came back and said, wow, this is great. Can you do this? And we set up a contract. And it's really meant to be an empowerment book, and that's why we put the two win in parentheses because I end every chapter with recommendations to win. But I think the real point is that entrepreneurship and business primarily is a failure sport. And so failure is a part of it, but it's the part that you learn. And if you use failure to learn and grow and succeed and not let it stop you, then failure is okay. When it's not okay is when you let it stop you. So that's why you put why entrepreneurs fail Really, to get some attention, it's kind of a marketing idea. But then the two win is really it's an empowerment book. At least that was the intention. But I put 27 years of best practices as a professor, uh, working with business owners as CEO coach, and so I literally put everything into it because I literally thought that that would be my last book, my first and last book. And then lo and behold, within three months after one book is published, we're talking about writing a second book or a sequel. Hmm. I think it's really interesting uh, what you said about failure as part of business. I, I bet you that people that go into business don't really think about that. Now you're 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 a professor, so I'm sure that that's part of what you talk about. But when people are considering business, you know, I wonder how often the word failure is even in their mindset. So I, I like. I like what you said about that, but 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 when, what you also said is while failure is part of business, you absolutely said afterwards, but don't let it stop you, which I think is really is hopeful and and your best practices. So, you this this book that you wrote is being used um, as a textbook. Am I understanding that correctly? That's correct. I have a class that I teach uh, Business One Hundred Entrepreneurship for Everyone. What's amazing about the class, uh, I was at Dominguez Hills, and we started an innovation incubator. My university president asked me to be the first executive director and started from ground up. And one thing, we looked at our curriculum. We didn't have enough entrepreneur-based classes, so I designed, instead of calling it Intro to Business, we called it Entrepreneurship for Everyone because we had a feeling that non-business majors may want to be interested in entrepreneurship. And lo and behold, now we have psychology majors, biology majors, digital arts mm. majors, music majors taking entrepreneurship for everyone. It seems like this millennial, and now we even have some Zoomers, the Gen Z kids. They're, uh, they're so um, entrepreneurial-minded. I think that mm-hmm. the millennial kids are more entrepreneur-minded than any other generation, but we're just now seeing the, the um, Gen Zers. It used to be my generation's. I'm a baby boomer, and it was about getting a job for life, retiring, getting the golden watch, and then in your mid-60s or 50s or whatever, you do whatever you want. But I think things change over the time because something called early retirement hit a lot of people in my generation, and they weren't ready to go, but the company was ready for them to go for 
business reason, usually financial reason. Right. And what, what do you do after that? But one thing I do know is that our economic system is capitalism, and it's based on making a profit, not a paycheck. And people who live in Beverly Hills and Palos Verdes and the nice parts of L.A., uh, the affluent parts, are primarily entrepreneurs where you're working towards a profit. And I think that's ultimately one of the things a lot of people want to do, but not so much profit. Nowadays we call it financial freedom. And financial freedom really means living the lifestyle you want, doing what you want, when you want to do it, but you're in control because you're running a business. And it's a little different than being an employee because as an employee, you're always going to be just an expense item. And the older you get, the bigger that expense is because the bigger your retirement and your benefits become. And that's why one reason why companies like to get rid of the older people and bring in the younger people with the lower expense. So that's really the hardcore part of it. Yeah. Well, so you've, so you've got this, this textbook, and I thought maybe you could just spend some time telling us about the components of your book so that people get a sense of, of what this is all about. Well, we talk about just the idea of kind of going through if you were going to start a business. So one of the early things we talk about is daring to fail. Uh, I start off with a couple of Michael Jordan quotes. Michael Jordan, in my opinion, the greatest of all time as a basketball player. Mm-hmm. And he talked about, uh, he wrote a small book about failure. And it was like a little mini book. But he said, uh, it's okay to fail. It's okay not to try. And I think that's really the thing. And then we get into getting the right people on the bus. And a guy named Jim Collins wrote a book called Good to Great. And he coined the phrase, get the right people on the bus, because you need a team. So we talk about that. We talk about doing market research. We talk about, I have three chapters devoted to access to capital, because as a former banker, I feel that 60% of any business plan is going to be the numbers. In banking, we always talked about if the numbers don't work, the boat don't float. So management operations is great. you got to be efficient when you come to operations. So I referred to a guy named Michael Gerber who wrote a book called The E-Myth and talked about the system as a solution. Marketing can be great. Coca-Cola, Nike are some amazing marketing companies. But at the end of the day, the numbers also have to work. So I really put a big emphasis on the numbers. And then I did something a little special. Uh, in 2017, I got involved with social entrepreneurship, and that's the idea of people, planet, profit, or the triple bottom line. So I conclude my book with a uh, chapter on the B Corp. The B Corp is an organization that certifies for-profit companies to be social entrepreneurs by passing this uh, assessment. It's a very long, uh, arduous assessment. And if you go through it, you get the label of a social entrepreneur. So companies like Patagonia is probably the most well-named, Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream, uh, Newman's Own. Those are just a sample of the companies that are B Corps. And uh, B Corps is that, become Gary, the worldwide may I interrupt movement. you? May I interrupt sure. you just for a moment so that, I, so that I'm clearly appreciating what you're saying? Are you saying V okay. like victory, V Corp? I'm saying V like boy. Be like boy. Be Got like it. boy. Yeah, corporation. Okay. Uh, okay. Sorry to go so fast. I get excited no, when I talk okay. about that. I know. That's uh, okay. So I, I apologize. Go ahead. I apologize for interrupting. Does the, does the B of B Corp, 
Does does the B stand for something? Is it business? You know, I'm not really sure. That is a great question. Uh, I know you could go to bcorporation.net and look up the website. Maybe there is huh. a story, but I do not know. That's a great question. Yeah, I just was. I, was, I ask a lot of questions. I, that probably is a good thing since I'm a podcaster. I love. Unfortunately, it. I <laughs> I tend to interrupt, which then um, uh, breaks your train of thought, which I certainly didn't mean to do. But I I I like to. Um, I don't know. I like to define what I'm hearing, so that that's really that's really important. And I'm I'm listening to what you're saying, and I, I'm thinking about people sitting in your classroom listening to what you're saying. So I wanted you. I, I apologize for interrupting. I want you to continue with what you were saying about the, the components of your book, because you were talking about the B Corps at this point. Yeah. So the B Corps is important. Is a lot of people have never heard of it, like yourself, uh, in I think it was April, March or April 2017, in one week I went to three social entrepreneur-related events, and I had this epiphany that our incubator, to be unique, should take a focus on social entrepreneurship. And so I remember going back to my executive team, uh, saying, hey, we're going to make a pivot, and we're going to go towards social entrepreneurship. And one of the VPs, she said, well, Gary, not everybody can be a nonprofit. And I said, oh, slow down. It's not about nonprofit. But that just shows you that people really don't understand when they hear social entrepreneurship. It really means caring about people, planet, and profit. So people include our employees and our customers. Planet, obviously, is our planet. But we used to think that the ocean was infinite, our resources were infinite, and we had no worry about trying to take care of them or preserve them. So... And at one point, there were even people saying, well, you know, it's too expensive to be, uh, have an ecology in mind and forget the aisles and forget this and forget that. But in reality, we do have to take care of the planet. We do have to take care of people. And it's not really a zero-sum game. So in other words, they all can coexist. And that's why I'm such a proponent of the B Corp, because I know that as an educator in MBA school, we've been teaching MBAs for the last 30 years profit maximization. And profit maximization sometimes can turn into greed. And instead of going the greed route, let's make sure we take care of the planet, even if we have to spend a little bit more. Let's sure that we have good benefits for our employees. Let's sure we take care of customers and not uh, try to do something like something dumb called design obsolescence that um, some of the American automakers back in the 80s did, where they were literally building cars to break down to force consumers to buy another car. But then the Japanese came in and made a better car for less money and forced the American automakers to turn to quality. I thought that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But, that's, that's, but I can that's tell you that in my book, one thing that is unique is that we talk about crowdfunding. And uh, Mark Hiraide is a colleague of mine. He's an attorney and even wrote some things. But under the Obama administration, President Obama uh, put together something called the Jobs Act, and then the Jobs Act, he uh, wrote in crowdfunding, or his colleagues wrote in crowdfunding, and became a new source of funding for startups. Literally going to the crowd, they have places like Kickstarter and Indiegogo, but you may have heard of stories of people going out, and we have this new way to make water. We have this new product that's going to uh, improve the environment, and people get excited. 
and may donate $1, $10, $100. Mm-hmm. But you didn't have to be an accredited investor to make uh, to invest in small companies. And so that's what crowdfunding is about. And my, my book talks about that as well. Nice. You do see a lot about that these days. Um, and I really didn't – I honestly didn't know exactly how that works. So people – you you you've got a product um that you're making and uh you want you don't have the capital to get it off the ground or you don't have as right. much capital as you would need to get right. it off the ground and so you go to crowdfunding and people you see it on social media all the time and people are yes, are asking for, for for donations so you actually mention that in your book as well right and the thing is, is that it's kind of fun because you put together a video. It should be 90 seconds or less, and you just tell your story, uh, why you're, why it's important what you're doing, the impact that you hope to make, because not everyone has the rich uncle or the uh, trust fund or whatever it takes to start a business, so they have to go to the crowd. So I just mm-hmm. recently uh, worked with a young man, and there's another kind of crowdfunding that just came out in the last three years called equity crowdfunding. Whereas opposed to just giving out a T-shirt or some small trinket, you can actually give equity. And uh, the crowdfunding company worked with was a company called Net Capital, and they were able to raise $110,000 over three months. And that has made a big difference in what they're able to do. Of course, they gave up a little bit of equity, but it was something they were willing to do to raise this additional funds. So crowdfunding can be a great source. And one thing that's important is you can have a great idea, but you got to have capital to make it work. Right, that's true. So I, you know, I didn't stop to realize this. So in crowdfunding, do people want to give a little token of something? Like if if you if you if you contribute, then I'm going to send you a T-shirt or something like that. Is that what happens in crowdfunding? Well, that is one type. That's called the rewards crowdfunding, and usually you're making donations. You don't get any equity or any return on the company profits, but the uh, company one incentivize incentivize you by giving you a T-shirt or giving you uh, maybe stickers or something or giving you a shout out on the website. But mm-hmm. that's the reward. And then we have the equity crowdfunding where you actually get shares of the company. And then there's a third type of crowdfunding called a lending crowdfunding where you actually can make a loan to the company. But all of it mm. is about going to the crowd as opposed to an accredited investor because those are angels, those are venture capitalists, and oftentimes those are very competitive, very hard to get to and get money out of. So the crowd mm. is just another source of capital for a business to get started. Wow, that's that's really that's really neat. I I, I knew I was going to learn a lot from you today, um, and just just what you said about the the three types of crowdfunding, the equity, the regular crowdfunding that people might be familiar with, the equity where you can get a share of this company, and then the lending where you can actually lend the money. That that's 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 very very interesting. Um, I I'm, I appreciate you sharing that part with me, and and you've you've also written Gary an additional book, 
And by the way, I do love stories, so by all means, throw them in wherever wherever it fits. Um, your 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 latest book just has only been out a few months because, like you said, you you know you didn't really intend to write a second book, and but lo and behold, it just was brewing, right? And it's like, man, I I I can see the the real need for this second book, and that is why black and brown fail to win. And let's mm-hmm. let's talk about the differences and and what was the um, the impetus for writing that particular book. Well, Domingos Hills, uh, where I teach, has uh, probably 75% black and brown population in the student body. And so obviously I've worked with quite a few. Uh, The first program I taught in at Cal State Northridge was literally called the Minority Business Program, where Northridge is trying to bring more black and brown into a major in business. So with that as a backdrop, we realized that I wanted to do something for black and brown people. And this was way before the civil unrest and COVID-19 because we started Mm -hmm. this back in February, 2019. Uh, And so what happened was we said, okay, is there a difference between entrepreneurs that are black and brown? So we did a little research. And so when we wrote the book, two things. We, kept, we started the book with the results that we came up with. We wanted to share some raw results from college students and, again, uh, high school students, again, the millennial group that we're really targeting towards. We, we want anybody to read it, but you always want to have a target, know who you're writing to. And so we did the research and showed the results, and then we talked about cultural differences because we do live in America, and in reality there are cultural differences between the lives that black and brown live versus the majority. And so we talked about that. But the point is we didn't want to have a pity party. We just wanted to acknowledge there are cultural differences, and we, out, we laid out a few of them. But then the big chapter that was different was when we got into the research about self-doubt. And mm. we found out that self-doubt is really big in the black and brown race. And what's really interesting, uh, Marsha, is that Sometimes it comes from the majority race, but sometimes the self-doubt comes from your own race, sometimes even your own family, where people are saying, Mm -hmm. you can't do that, you're not supposed to do that, that's not your place, or I don't believe in that, or I don't think you can do that. But as entrepreneurs will be, we're problem solvers, and we don't let people who doubt us stop us. And so the point is, and the question was, is self-doubt holding you back? Because there are plenty of stories out there where self-doubt held some people back, but some people, it gave them extra motivation to prove people wrong. And I think the real key is the power of our mind and what goes on in that six inches between your ears. And it's just really interesting that if you think the right way, if you think you can, you're probably right. And if you think you cannot, you're probably right. So we want to just address the issue of self-doubt put it out there, and not let that hold us back. Because once we get beyond self-doubt and cultural differences, then entrepreneurship, whether you're black or white or brown, it's really the same. Asian, Native American, Middle Eastern, you're still dealing with operations and HR issues. You're dealing with marketing mm-hmm. issues. And you're dealing with finance issues and team issues, et cetera. So once we got past those, then we wrote the book, it's, just, it's another book, and we talked about some of the same topics, 
We did talk about crowdfunding again in the second book. We did talk mm-hmm. about the B Corp again in the second book because we were not sure if everyone who read the first book read the second book. So mm-hmm. we wanted to have some independence. The first book was written as a college textbook, where the second book is more of a business book available on Amazon at only $14.99. Nice. The textbook, whenever you get into that domain, you're into at least 60 to $90 books at a minimum. That's You know, you, you said something that really triggered an, an instant reaction, and, um, and this will probably sound very familiar to you. I, I'm, I'm, I don't do a lot of reading. I'm just going to be honest with you. I, I, I just don't. But one book that I am reading, and I'm taking my time to really absorb it, is The Secret, which is mm. all about the law of attraction. And mm-hmm. it's exactly what you said here. It, it's it's exactly what you said about if you think you can, you can, because that's what's emanating. And if you think you can't, and that's what's emanating, you probably won't. So the the mm-hmm. power of our of just our thoughts, and sometimes you get it from a textbook. Sometimes you get it from a colleague. Sometimes you get it from a family member. Sometimes you get it from your instructor. Or your or your friends. I think it's so valuable how we all learn, and we don't all learn mm-hmm. the same way. And you're talking about, you know, we're you and I are in the same generation, um, but the millennials, you know, they're they're seeing life through a much different lens, a much different prism than what what, yeah. what we saw, and and. There, it's it's really it's really interesting to watch young people. I had the great fortune you had mentioned LMU uh, earlier, Gary, and I have a really close friend that worked in their MBA executive MBA office at LMU, and those were students that were getting an executive MBA degree, and they already had their undergrad degrees, and they were in a variety of fields, just like you had mentioned earlier. And um, part of what we did was international travel. And Mm. it was fascinating being with people that were really, for the most part, for the most part, younger than my own kids. I mean, some were in Mm -hmm. their 40s. But um, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's really exciting. I guess that's my the point of telling you this is it was really exciting being around people that wanted to take that leap and to become entrepreneurs and to and to gain whether they wanted to do it in their own business or they were going to do it in the businesses that they were in. I, I just I found the the students just so incredibly fascinating um and and so it makes me wonder because you are an instructor you are a professor at at cal state dominguez what are the students saying about your books what what's the feedback you're getting from them well they appreciate that it is uh short it's not a lot of long chapters they appreciate that there are a lot of resources that are in the book because I cite several books. I don't just make a quotation and give a little bibliography. I actually put a copy of the book, uh, the book jacket or how to get the book or audible book as part of the uh, resources. So it's literally a book within a book, tons of references, and the students appreciate that. Plus they appreciate the fact that I'm talking about things that they can relate to and that they can understand and put into action. 
So it really wasn't meant to be a book that you read and put to put away. We really wanted to be maybe more like a working textbook, a working book that you would have and refer to often as opposed to read something and say, oh, that's nice and put it away. So they really enjoy it because it's practical and it's easy to use and easy to read. Nice. You, we had mentioned you had. I'd like to talk to my guests. Just for those of you that are listening, it, I like to establish a connection with my guests prior to going on the air and doing a live broadcast. And in talking with you, and we've actually talked a couple of times about lots of different subjects. And one mm-hmm. of the things that came out in our conversation when we spoke um, last week was this incredible nonprofit that you're working with. And I thought that maybe you could talk to us about um, the Compton Youth Build. Well, the Compton Youth Build is an organization I'm actually on the board of directors with. But the organization that I started is the Polk Institute Foundation. Right. And we launched that January 15, 2021. And actually, it's amazing how life would have it, COVID-19 really has been uh, uh, devastating to a lot of people, a lot of loss of life, uh, loss of business, a lot of businesses. I think the SBA said something like 65% of businesses shut down at one point because of COVID-19, and only 30 35% may come back. But on the other side, entrepreneurship in business startups is greater I think the second quarter or third quarter of last year, the number was higher than any other third quarter in history for startups. So while Hmm. some people are being devastated, some people are taking advantage, and that's what the Folk Institute is doing. So what we decided, I did some research and found out that we have $1.6 trillion in student debt. And that was amazing to me, that $1.6 trillion and this was in U.S. News and World Report. And then you read further about the average, how much they owe, and they talk about the colleges with a high tuition. And anyway, then I read further and find, I found out there were 15 universities that were actually tuition-free, and I had never heard of any. And then I was really startled to find that five of them are our, na- are our military academies. So West Point, the Naval Academy, et cetera, hmm. are all tuition-free, paid for by the U.S. government. And we know that they're turning out military leaders, and the people who go through there have to do military time. So I started asking a question. You talked about you asked questions. I was one of those wide kids, too. And um, I said, well, why not have a tuition-free, master-level education targeted black and brown entrepreneurs? And with that, the student debt being the catalyst, we start putting together the Polk Institute, and we said we will give three phases. We'll have phase one, a 40-week education where we'll give, teach them 10 classes. And then we'll have phase two, a six-week accelerator program where we will give them a mentor to give them six months to launch their business. And then phase three would be access to capital. And so we figured that with Zoom technology, we can now teach total online. We didn't need brick and mortar, so that was a big help. Before COVID-19, if you wanted to have a class, you had to find a building because mm-hmm. video conference really wasn't a good substitute. So you'd have to find a hotel or a restaurant or a building or somewhere. 
But now we launched and had our first class February 1. Uh, I taught the first class. We had 26 people, uh, founders in our first class, and it's all on Zoom. So we plan to uh, teach all 10 classes. We're going to have eight required classes, and we're going to have two electives. But here's what's really exciting. We wanted to focus on black and brown, which we did, but we did not want to be exclusive. So in Mm -hmm. our first class, we have 17 women founders. We had nine men founders. We had 11 black founders. We had six brown founders. We had seven white founders, and we had two Asian founders. And then we had one founder based in Atlanta, one founder based in New York, one in Boston, one in Chicago, and one in Denver. So we had geographic diversity. We had uh, ethnicity uh, diversity. And then what was really cool, Marsha, we had three or four baby boomers, or we have because it's the current class, three or four baby boomers. We have uh, two or three Gen Zs. We have five or six Gen S, and then the rest are millennials. So we have this very diverse group. We don't have one kind of company, one kind of industry, because our focus Uh is on innovation. And so we have a couple of nonprofits that are working with us. So the Polk Institute is something that sometimes things bad keep you up at night, and sometimes good things keep you up at night. And the Polk Institute Foundation is a good thing that's been keeping me up at night. And it's just amazing to see something that, you talk about and you dream about in July of 2020, and then here we are in January 2021, and we launch it. And then February, we actually held our first class February 4th, and to look out and see 26 people on a Zoom call eager to learn about entrepreneurship. And uh, we're excited. Here's our aspirational vision. We want to launch 1,000 social entrepreneurships by 2032. So over the next 10 years, we want to launch a thousand companies and hopefully they're all social entrepreneurs at a minimum 60% of them will be. And we're very Hmm. excited about that. I guess. So we're a nonprofit and uh, we're excited about the Polk Institute foundation. I bet you are. Wow. That's, 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 that's fabulous. Um, I, I, do you mind if we, do, I know that we, we, we moved over to the Polk Institute, um, Gary, but mm-hmm. I know when you and I had spoke on the phone and we talked about you, because um, you, are, you are a man, you're, I, I, I refer to you, you're like a juggler. You're like a master juggler. There are so many things up in the air of which you're not dropping any. I, I did want to just quickly, if you didn't mind, go back to the Compton Youth Build because you said you are a board of dire- on the board of directors there. What, what is that organization about? Well, with the Compton Youth Build, um, we focus on young people 16 to 24 primarily. Uh, some are in continuation schools. Some are uh, in a foster home situation. Some are out of foster home, but really don't have a direction. So we have a culinary program. We have a construction program. We're a nonprofit, Mm. and we're there to help young people. But we want to not just help them on a temporary basis. We want to help them be sustainable. So we want to help them with some life skills and job skills that it takes to get to the next level. So sometimes the kids, uh, kids, I got to stop that. They're young people. Sometimes the young people didn't get their uh, high school diploma, 
And so there's a GED program that we emphasize. Mm. But the other thing is that we want to try to try to teach them life skills to help them be able to make it through life. And uh, I'm really proud to be part of that organization. I just joined them in September of 2020, and uh, I've been there and tried to make an impact. And one of the things I wanted to do to try to help out financially, I donated or I will be donating 50% of the book sales of my first year of the my book two, Why Black and Brown Entrepreneurs Fail to Win, will go to the Compton Youth Bill. That's my donation, oh. my way of giving back to the community. Oh, that's great. That that that's that's terrific. I I another reason why those of you out there listening might want to really consider just going to Amazon and purchasing purchasing this book. It's it's not expensive, and it's it's short, isn't it? It's, it's, it's very it's, short. Right. Yeah. Well, I think you know, that's terrific. here's something really interesting. What's uh, one of my students, um, she graduated in 2004. Her name is Shiraz Kelly. She um, grew up in um, Tunisia, and she came to the United States. And one of her dreams was to come to the United States and become an entrepreneur. She graduated in 05, and I asked her to write her entrepreneurial journey. And it turned out to be a little longer than I anticipated, but I wanted to – for her entire story to be there. So in my uh-huh. book, it's uh, My Entrepreneurial Journey from Tunisia to Cali, and it's by Shiraz Kelly. And it's an amazing book about one woman who came through so many odds, overcame so many issues, and now is a very successful CEO. I think she's on her third company now. And, wow. again, hopefully it's relatable. Hopefully a young lady will read this and say, wow, she did all that. Oh, I can relate mm-hmm. to that. I'm dealing with that. I had to deal with that. And she overcame it because she's a real person. This is not someone off in Hollywood or somewhere. This is somewhere you know, over in, let's say, Wall Street. This is someone that's local to the South Bay that has a mm-hmm. great story, doesn't mind sharing her story. And her, her story is in my book, Intact. And it just talks about childhood and those challenges, teenagehood, adulthood, going through marriage, having a divorce, persevering, mm-hmm. and being successful at the end of the day. And that's what it's about. Wow. Talk about an impact, just like you said. And you, and you had said earlier, and I think this is another example of it, about those three Ps, the people, the planet, the profit. Um, mm-hmm. you, you had mentioned also a little bit earlier about social entrepreneurship, but I see oftentimes the term, and maybe you can help me understand the def- the, diff- the definition and difference, I see oftentimes the term serial entrepreneurship. Is is that different than social entrepreneurship? Oh, absolutely. What's, so the, what's a serial? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So a serial entrepreneur is the type of person that maybe is um, – doesn't want to do one job or one business for life. So I have a great case study called Frank Adante, the serial entrepreneur, and it's about a guy who had four businesses between 18 and 28. So I use it, it's a Harvard-level case study, but I use it in all my classes on entrepreneurship because he is a serial entrepreneur. So a serial entrepreneur will have three or four businesses, in this case, 
it, uh, Frank had five. And uh, hmm. Frank spent time in the Silicon Valley. He's been down to L.A. He's a real guy, so you can Google Frank Adante and find him. But a serial entrepreneur is a person that started a business, found success, sold the business, and started another business. Found hmm. success, sold the business. So it's not a serial entrepreneur, a person who failed 10 times, but a serial entrepreneur that has been successful, been able to sell their business and then start something new. Because some people, I guess they don't want grass to grow under their feet, or maybe mm-hmm. they love the starting part and the excitement of mm-hmm. that. And once you mm-hmm. get it to a certain, le- certain level, it may be a little boring to just keep doing the same thing. But that's what a serial entrepreneur is. That's interesting. So, so that I'm clear, so it's not that they have multiple businesses running at the same time. They are starting a business, selling a business, getting the capital of that business, and starting a different business. Am I? Do I have that correct? Exactly. You oh, have it great. Correct. Yes. Okay, yep. terrific. And when you talked about the $1.6 trillion in student debt, I presume you're talking just the U.S., is that right? Just the U.S., right. Okay. And so it's, for you, know, you yeah, wow. Well, what I was going to say is that a lot of it with COVID-19 and the kids off campus, out of the dorms, and mm-hmm. the USC's and the Harvard saying that even though we're on a dorm life, we're still going to full, charge full tuition, and people said, no, we signed up for the experience. Because I've always thought that um, – Online education shouldn't be the same price as in class because mm-hmm. it's so different. It's really not for everybody. I've been certified as an online professor since 2015. I actually started teaching online in 03, so I have a lot of experience. But I know that online is not for everybody, but during pandemic times, everyone had to do it, so we didn't have a choice. But I just think that academia uh, needs to take a step back and look at COVID and maybe change some of the business practices because having $300 textbooks and students use them for 16, month, uh, 16 weeks and then they sell them back to some bookseller, it's almost like a used car. They buy it to you, from you for cheap. Then they go back and try to sell it and make a lot of money. It's really on the backs of these kids or the mm-hmm. students. FC, um, or their parents. <laughs> or their parents, exactly. But they call it student debt, and a lot of – Students are really in debt, and they can't really move forward in their life because and they'll see the full package. I think it's like 80000 tuition, room, board, and everything times four. That's $320,000. And I know they go there for the connections and the job opportunity. You can't tell me everyone who graduates from SC has a job, but they're definitely going to have a student debt unless they were blessed or had some scholarship or something else. And just $1.6 trillion is amazing. And it's almost like the mortgage meltdown back in 2008. And it'll be interesting to see what the government does about that because mm-hmm. it's really holding people back. And why did we go to college in the first place? We went to college in the first place to have a better life, to right. have an education and get more options, not to go through this debt. And I think from the 90s and the 2000s where the price of education really escalated. But I think mm-hmm. the amount of tuition needs to be looked at, the books. I think the education business model really needs to be looked at, and hopefully COVID-19 kind of showed that. So what we wanted to do at the Polk Institute was go out and find individual donors, banks, corporations, foundations, 
that will provide scholarships for our students while we can provide education and training on a tuition-free basis. We do value it at $20,000. If it was a non-U.S. resident or citizen, we would charge them $20,000 for our program. But for the people in there now, tuition-free. And uh, we're excited about that. But now we have to go out and raise our own funds so we can make this happen on a sustainable basis. No kidding. So I know you yes. mentioned that it's there's 10 classes over 40 weeks. And now when yes. those classes are over, do they then go to the next level, which is the six-week extension? Is that, I mean, do, are they, do they follow each other so that they do all three? Because you talked about yeah, so teaching put, access to capital. Yeah, so we have, we call them a cohort class. So it's a class of uh, 26 students. They take all the classes together. We have mm-hmm. one class per month, so four weeks. And over 10 months is 40 weeks. And then mm-hmm. they graduate. We're going to have a Founders Meet Funders. We already have the date, January 15, 2022. We're going to have a big graduation gala, but instead of pomp and circumstance and long speeches, we're going to have our graduating founders do a pitch, an investor-quality pitch, and hopefully we'll have a room full of investors who are interested in working with our students. And mm-hmm. then the sixth month is actually an accelerator where the idea is that you work six for the Six months mentor. or six weeks? I'm sorry, Gary. Did you say six, six months or six, six weeks? Months. Oh, I six wrote that months. wrong. Okay. And it's up Pardon to me. six months. It could be two or three months. It depends on how long it takes them to do the final touches to be able to launch their business and go live, mm-hmm. meaning trying to get real sales and make their profit projections and all the other things. So six months, and then once they have that done, then we want to in, in bring investors again, and that is the access to capital where we're going to try to help them either work with CDFIs, which are community development financial institutions who lend to startups or angel investors to help them get that first investment. What's interesting about investing in entrepreneur startups, investors don't want to be the first or the lead investor. They want to be the first, second investor kind of interesting. They want mm-hmm. someone else to take the risk first, and then they want to join in on the bandwagon. So we understand that challenge, and we want mm-hmm. to be part of the solution by helping them find that first lead investor. Right. So that's what you're talking about when you talk about access to capital. Yes. Got and, Marcia, if I can jump in, we did Please. jump over one other thing. We are now, now that I have my second book launched, I am now in the process of writing my third book, which will be a I was going to ask you that. Okay. And it okay. is Why Women Entrepreneurs Fail to Win. So happy Women's History Month to all the ladies in the audience. March is our Women's History Month. And in the past, March, I've had innovative women pitch competitions for women only in the month of March. So it's great that we're talking. But uh, hopefully by October, December, we'll have this book done. And we're focusing on the difference of women entrepreneurs versus other entrepreneurs, similar to the black and brown, because Mm -hmm. we've done some research. One of the big things that jumped out and really is kind of troubling is that for whatever reason, women have a hard time with access to capital. So instead of closing my other book with access to capital, 
we're leading this book with a chapter on access to capital. So I have a co-author, Jennifer Broadman. She's a PhD. She teaches entrepreneur finance at Dominguez Hills with me. And uh, she was funded by the Mervyn Dimely uh, Research and Economic um, Commission at Dominguez to research women entrepreneurs and access to capital. So some of her formal research will be part of my third book, and we really want to focus in on that because that is a big issue. There's some other issues that women deal with, but access to capital is like the biggest one that I don't know why it's women. Maybe it's because most of the investors are males, and that has something to do with it. People kind of invest into people that look like them, and you don't have a lot of women investors. You have more and more, especially, though, when you get to the venture capital, it's really not a lot. I work with uh, the Pasadena Angels. I work with the Tech Coast Angels, and maybe 15% of the Angels, maybe 20 to stretch it, are women, and the rest are males. Hmm. And that makes it tough. Yeah. I bet it does. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad. I, you know, I was going to ask you if you had a third book out there. So it, it makes total sense that you're talking about this. Um, it's interesting because when I was working, when I met these um, MBA, ex-executive MBA students um, in the business college, um, it was interesting how many are women. And you know something? <laughs> I can't believe I'm just now saying this, and that is another connection that I didn't mention until just this moment. Uh, my son and daughter-in-law both work for the University of Arizona, and my husband, mm. my husband, my son works in the Eller Business College, and mm-hmm. I, I think that it would be very interesting for me to connect the two of you as well like you said everything is online and you know they're looking to you know develop these these entrepreneurs and these and these business uh students and um that's just mm-hmm. another crossover <laughs> and speaking of crossovers i know we don't have a lot of time left but i do have to bring up another subject that's sort of moves us away from the entrepreneurship, if you're all right, but maybe there's a tie-in. Okay. And that is that we both love sports. Um, in fact, yes. my son also really loves sports. Um, and basketball is particularly one of my favorite for- sports, although I am a Dodger season ticket holder since before most mm. of these people that are listening were born. But um, <laughs> And I guess our Dodgers will be coming back um, very soon. But Yes. You you were a women's, and I have to tell you, that's another crossover. So I am an original Sparks season ticket holder. The WNBA oh, right. are, are coming into celebrating their 25th anniversary. In fact, wow, that's amazing. In fact, this is so cool, Gary. I don't. I'm sure I didn't mention this to you. Um, I was actually interviewed by the BBC Sports Network, representing mm-hmm. the Sparks as a fan, and it was a pre-recorded interview. I'm not quite sure when it's going to be distributed, but the Sparks thought enough of me to actually represent them in talking about what women's basketball means. So I can tell you when I say that I am a big fan of women's basketball i'm not kidding about that so you actually coached women's basketball where, where was that where, where did you coach that so 1998 uh, i 
actually 95, I coached my first women's team, a girls' middle school team at uh, Frank Tarrant Middle School in L.A. Oh, yes. Ladera Heights. Ladera Heights, yes. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. And what was cool about that team is that it was middle school. I had uh, a 6'2 player and two uh, a set of twins that were six feet. And I used to always make the joke, I like looking up to my post players. So my <laughs> middle school team was bigger than my high school team. My first wow. high school team was at uh, Whitney High School in Cerritos. And it was one of those, uh, it's a gifted magnet, part of the ABC school district. But um, quite a few... Um, Let's just say um, the, before I got there, the record was four and twenty-two, and oh my first year there, we got there, we brought them up to fourteen and thirteen. The next year, we got them to seventeen and nine, and got them into the CIF quarterfinals. And mm-hmm. I love coaching women because women are more coachable. I have mm-hmm. uh, two boys and a daughter, and I enjoy coaching all of them. But for some reason, coaching girls was just more fun because. When girls play basketball, they're playing teamwork because they're not as athletic, so they can't do individual stuff like the guys can, so they have to rely on teamwork to actually – but the game, to me, is all about teamwork. And so the way the girls have to play really was right up my alley. So I coached there. Then I went to Long Beach, Jordan, over North Long Beach, Mm -hmm. and had some pretty decent success there. But then I went up and uh, I got a call from Dominguez Hills. I actually went to Dominguez Hills as the assistant women's basketball coach because I had a sales background. I was pretty good in recruiting, so I became the recruiting coordinator. So I stayed there two mm. years, made a small mistake, went coach boys varsity and didn't like it and realized why, would I, why am I driving all this distance to do something I'm not having fun. So then I left there. I don't even want to mention the high school, but left there and went to Cypress College in North Orange County and paired with Margaret Moore and a guy named Mike Ford. And uh, we had a great run. And it's interesting you say that about the Sparks because Coach Moore, who was our head coach at Cypress, she uh, played at Long Beach State, was part of the Long Beach State Final Four team, Mm. and she became a coach for the Sparks. So when Michael Cooper was coaching there, Coach mm-hmm. Moore was on his um, staff. And it worked out wow. kind of cool because the WNBA is in the summer and traditional basketball is in the winter. So she right. was able to do both. And wow. so the only thing, we lost her in the summer a little bit. So it was a cool experience. And we even got a chance to go up, uh, Coach Ford and I, and help, help out with one of their tryouts. And it was just amazing watching these women. Some had been away from the game a couple of years and had mm-hmm. families and other things, and some were still young. And just watching mm-hmm. these women go through it to try to reach their dream of playing professional basketball. So um, I love it, and I love women's basketball. Coach Wooden, I'm sure you remember John Wooden. Oh, yes. One time he was noted to say that the best brand of basketball on the planet is the Women's College Final Four. Because oh, when you wow. get to that, cause before then, women pro sports wasn't around the WNBA. So he talked mm-hmm. about the highest level was women's college final four and the level that they played at and the teamwork. Cause coach Wooden was all about teamwork as, oh, himself. Boy. You're not and kidding. so, yes, right. I love women's basketball and uh, I've been out of coaching since uh, 2013 now, but 
But uh-huh. uh, I think one day I'm going to coach me another team. It's probably going to be a girls' team somewhere, maybe a uh-huh. middle school, park and rec, maybe a high school. But I love coaching. The coaching blood is not out of me. Well, you know, it's so interesting, as as I knew this was going to happen, that we, you and I could talk for a long time together. But there's a relationship yeah. in 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 your demeanor in that a coach is a coach is a coach, whether it's those middle school kids over at parent school, which I know exactly where that is. It's practically in my backyard. Um, mm-hmm. Whether it's um, college ball, I mean, certainly you're familiar, familiar with Lisa Leslie when she went to Morningside and Tina Absolutely. Thompson, yep. you know, and then yep. you know, and Lisa, you know, she she's the first female to dunk in the pros. I mean, you know, and and mm-hmm. you've got, you know, it, it's 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 a remarkable sport. Cheryl and, Miller. and I have oh, Cheryl Miller, and then you know, you're seeing Reggie Miller doing commercials right now. Her brother, and what yeah, are we talking right. about? March Madness. We're here. I, the, you know, yes. um, it, it's it's the the crossovers of this, you know, um, what is it? The law of attraction crossovers that you and I have um, are are what make for such a wonderful conversation, and it's why mm-hmm. I so was so grateful for the opportunity and and thank you, Devin Blaine and and the group that she 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 has sent me some of the most remarkable people that she represents in her PR firm. And um, I, I just love doing this. I, I, I love doing this. I love sharing the passions that my guests enjoy. It, it is such a feel-good story, and and there hasn't probably been a better time than where we've been recently. We're hearing something that's feel-good just makes you feel good, you know, as, as overstated as that might be. But um, I just I want to thank you for taking the time out today to share your expertise, your passion, uh, what you're doing, whether it's serving on a board, whether it's doing your foundation. You know, people can donate. You're not going to turn down a donation. And um, I will make certain that your website is um, prominent on the blog when I write about our show for people that will be listening to this um, that may not be listening to it live. And I just want to thank you, Gary, for, for taking the time today to spend this afternoon with me. It's It's been marvelous. Well, Marcia, likewise. I mean, it's humbling to be here and talking to you and, sharing stories with you because this is an opportunity. I know there are a lot of people probably you could have here instead of me. So thank you for giving nope. me this opportunity. And you know what? We'll, uh, oftentimes, Gary, I have people ret- return, and I know you're writing your third book about women entrepreneurs, and I, I think I heard you say you're looking forward to it coming out towards the fall, October maybe. And, you know, perhaps it would be another time to visit again and, and hear what you've done in in the next six months because it's a growing field, and as you mentioned, um, you know I I don't think there I don't think you have any openings to have cohorts right now, but you are just at the beginning of something that so many um, people of all ages, and also right. not just one ethnicity. Um, it, right. I I just think it and or gender. So I just think it's terrific and. Um, I, I do. I am really gr- grateful for this, and I know that you have a busy lifestyle, so I won't hold you any longer. But thank you once again for joining me, and 
Um, thank you all for listening. I don't want to not mention the fact that while you and I are having this great conversation, many people are listening to the show, and I do appreciate your following. So with that, I will say goodbye, and um, everybody have a safe week, and I'll look forward to having you join me again next week. Bye for now, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, Marcia. Thanks, Gary.